Hold on and buckle up. You're about to ride into a place of theological sanity with Appalachian Anglican. Ecclesia Appalachia Missio Mundi. Good morning, Appalachia. We are ready to rock and roll with another episode here in West By God, Virginia. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl. In this episode, we will continue the discussion about prophecy, looking specifically into how God speaks. We're going to be looking into the Corinthian letters, as well as the 39 articles, and also some of the beautiful stories about prophecy in the book of Acts. This is a topic on the hermeneutic of the Spirit. We could expand that into talking about a, a Pentecostal hermeneutic or a charismatic hermeneutic or a hermeneutic of the spirit, if you will. A lot of Pentecostal thinkers were trying to really press for that 20, 30 years ago. Some probably still are. But my, one of my professors in my undergrad had five PhDs, Dr. Vernon Purdy. And he said in class one time that we needed a Pentecostal hermeneutic. Well, Josh, I began to research a Pentecostal hermeneutic. And you know what I discovered 10 years later? What was it? That was my on-ramp into the Anglican Communion. Wow. Yes. You so that's prophesied in the middle of the class then. Dr. Purdy? Uh, I don't know. He, he probably would have shied away from the idea that he prophesied in class. <laughs> uh, he's with the Lord now, as I understand it. But um, great, great class. Three, uh, three, four theology classes, three of them with him. So we're going to talk about how we know the Holy Spirit is speaking prophetically. Someone asked, has, has been not just someone, but there's been someone's have been asking, how do I know if the Lord's speaking to me? And we want to deal with that. I think it's important that we, we touch on that topic. We had uh, been talking, and a lot of times people, especially when they hear you, uh, Father Darrell, is uh, they, they, I think they hear your, your angry voice and confuse that sometimes with your passionate voice. Thank you. Yes, uh, 100%. One of the things that we, we've been hearing feedback is, so you guys really don't like prophecy, or like you think that prophecy is a very negative thing. I've heard that my whole Christian life. I would give you an example. When I was in Bible college, again, this is not in the theology class, but in Bible college, there was information coming to light about a series of inaccurate, I won't even use the word false at this moment, but inaccurate prophecies, like we were talking about last week, some, from some very, very key leaders in the Pentecostal charismatic world. These guys were predicting stuff that was too specific to be misunderstood, right? And none of it was coming to pass. And then some of them were saying things like, well, the Lord told me that, or no, so-and-so came to me with a word from God that the Lord was going to begin to appear at my meetings and walk on the stage, this kind of stuff. And I was pretty vocally saying then, that's stupid. Don't listen to that. That's ridiculous. And so uh, one of the ladies... She she got pretty animated at me. Now, granted, at the time when she got animated with me, I was in the computer lab, so I wasn't loud, and I wasn't saying what I just said while I was sitting there. I just looked over to the left of me and talked to another guy about, hey, man, have you heard about this particular word? It's pretty crazy, isn't it? And she just like got quite vocal in the computer lab. You don't believe in prophets. You don't believe in prophecy. How could you even say you're in a spirit-filled Bible college. You don't even believe in that. Which was pretty ironic because like two weeks before that, like right around the same time in the lunchroom, there was another guy who was mad at me because I believed in the apostolic and prophetic gifts and that God called people into those kinds of works. And he was upset because he perceived that I was too, too open to the gifts and the operations of the spirit while generating this very vehement reaction from somebody else who thought the other way. And so it's not a new thing for me to hear, you must not believe in prophets. No, I just think we shouldn't deal with nonsense. You know, I'm going to give, uh, for those in Appalachia, and for those of you that grew up uh, a little bit on the redneck side of things, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you all an analogy. So uh, growing up in the uh, mountains of West Virginia, very much so. I mean, my family's been here for the last... 100 years on the property no over 100 years now congratulations yeah so i'm like it, it runs through my veins like i can't run from it like country roads is pretty much what's playing constantly in the car 
In the back of your mind. Yes, yes. And in my mind, it's just the soundtrack to my life. Yes. And so we, we grew up as a very pro second amendment, very gun friendly. If that's not you, that's fine. I'm just giving background. Okay. It is in Appalachia and the Ozarks. Yes. A hundred percent. So my dad, when we started, you know, growing up and getting to the age where we could handle firearms, he was very adamant that guns could be dangerous gun safety before we even fired a gun. Not only was your dad a pro-gun guy, he was a captain in the Army in the Gulf War. So I, I think that's good to say. So, you know, people to know that as well. Exactly. So, I mean, but this is very much so part of our, our family culture for the most part. This, this next part, the gun safety part of it. So we learned gun safety first. Always treat a gun like it's loaded. When someone hands you a weapon, you always check the chamber and make sure there's not a round there. Even after you've checked the chamber to make sure that there's not a round there, you do not point it at anything you do not tend to destroy or kill before we even picked up a firearm. That is what we are doing in many regards, That's in right. regards to prophecy. And so we're talking about these things and saying, hey, be careful. Now let's, let's have fun within these parameters. I wish Christians would treat saying the Lord told me the way people were supposed to treat firearms. Well, yeah. So I, ironically enough, um, I, I, I'm not a big poster on Facebook, if anybody knows that, but I love to lurk. And so today I was looking this it's morning. A lurker. I, or is I it am. ghosting? No, there's another term for that. What, is it, what, is it kid, what do the kids call this, Josh? It's well, I, think it's, I think it's just lurking. Just lurking? Like, creeping. 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 That's <laughs> it. That's a, it's not creeping. They're public <laughs> posts that come up on my feed from like different Facebook groups. So that's like forums aren't really a thing anymore. That's very like 2003. It now is. it's Facebook groups. Yeah. And so I'm part of all these Facebook groups and I'm always reading what other people have to say. Should just I say to, which ones? No, no, probably not. <laughs> I mean, I don't post anything in them. So um, in this particular one, someone made a comment and it was just a one liner and nobody liked it. And I thought it was actually the best comment on the entire post. And they say uh, it was somebody that was inaccurately representing scripture like clearly like not even close like not even like oh well if you interpret it this way then you can get to such and such and such nothing like that it was just yeah this is clearly wrong i don't think this is right and someone said imagine if god sued us for slander cases yeah i'm like oh my like i was just waking up i was still wiping the eye boogers out my eyes and uh Reading that, I'm like, well, that'll wake you up. Who needs coffee this morning? Paul's point is that he will, 1 Corinthians 15, when he's talking about the resurrection. And he, he, he says, you know, are, gonna, are we going to bear false witness against God? That's, his, that's like his big point. We, we prove to be false witnesses if there's no resurrection, then Christ isn't raised. And we bear witness falsely against the Lord. So think about breaking the commandment, and you're speaking on behalf of God, and he's not speaking. And that's, that's the... Man, that's a giant prohibition in the law of Moses, um, not just in regarding to prophecy, but anything that's a misrepresentation of him. No images, no false religious system, no alternative priesthood. None of that is permitted because it misrepresents, it bears false witness against him. Oh, yeah. And I didn't mean to bring us down that little rabbit hole before. I know we're trying to get into some other content, so I didn't mean to bring us over in that direction, but I did want to kind of explain why we are doing and why are we discussing the things the way that we are. Right. It's because there's a, there's a reason for it. And these are very important because if you're going to do it with firearms, come on, I think we should do it with prophecy because uh, it can have long, just as long, just as negative effects, but it can also have just as positive effects when used properly and like correctly. Mm-hmm. So this, was, this is going to bring us into the first question, because I think it'd be good if we, as we're weaving, you know, scripture references and, and various theological points through the conversation, we weave it around some of these very practical parts. So here's my first question. Josh, how does somebody know if God's speaking to them? Well, I'm going to begin from this point, a point that I always think about, and I've been hammering down in my own life as it is. So it goes like this, it goes... In order to even hear from God, you need to be within the scriptures, within the word of God, like consistently, like listening to it, hearing it, right? And then from that point, because, uh, because I guess one of the things you told me through like, well, not tell me, you preached about it, or taught about it. But again, if you're not consistently in the word of God and you hear something, 
you don't really know what that's it, where I'm going at first before we get into the methodology of discernment okay, which is you. being in scripture okay. someone has an experience so how, so how do they have so a locution they, they hear something they, there's they something it. yeah okay I understand that I that's happened to me quite because this is what bit. people this is what they say well how do I know that my random thoughts that I really feel good about are God I as for me I always test it in a couple of different ways I go find like one person that I confidently like trust and I share it with them and they're Christian and they're not just, you know, like doing a bunch of random stuff. Well, I, okay. I mean, and that's, that's part of the discernment. And but then I, I think about the scripture. I'm, I'm, yeah. Step back a little bit more though. Step back even further with the question. And, and here's where I'm, here, here's why I'm bringing it up right now because it's, it, it's predicates everything else that we're going to discuss. If, you're having some kind of experience, some interlocution, some inner voice, or, or even you're hearing something audibly, for that matter. You know, you're, you're having a vision, um, or you're having a trance. You know, the Spirit comes upon you like a trance. Well, that's, where's that in the Bible? It's all over the place. Ezekiel and then uh, Peter, you know, they have trances where the Spirit comes upon them, and the vision isn't just something they're observing, but it's, a, it's like another environment's created that is either... Um, calling the fullness of their attention away from the material world that they're in, or it's something that's kind of overlapping the material world and interacting with both. I mean, John's in the spirit on the Lord's day and he's called up into heaven while his body's still in Patmos. Paul talks about being, well, a man he knows in Christ who, how does he say it, 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven, showing things that he can't say. So there are trances, there are visions, those are things that, you know, you're, you're the, the, the eyes are a big part of that. In vision, usually you're awake, in contrast to a dream when you're asleep. Then you have interlocutions where there's a, a word, an utterance, something on the inside, but it's clear. There, there's a, a definitive articulation in it that goes beyond a simple, although important, but a simple utterance or unction, if you will. Because often the unctions are things that you've got to vocalize. You have, you have to give articulation to Whereas locutions are articulated by someone else or something else that takes concrete shape in your mind. Okay, Aquinas' theology is magnificent here because he, he talks about how angels have access to the imagination, demons have access to the imagination, which is one reason why you have to guard what you see with your eyes. Because the demons can bring up and angels can bring up things from your imagination as a means of communication with you. We could talk about Aquinas and, and that kind of um, angelic doctoring, if you will, another time. But when it comes to how the Holy Spirit's speaking, how do you know that any of that stuff that's taking place is the Holy Spirit? Most of the time, when people ask me that question, they're not talking about trances. They're not talking about visions. They may be talking about dreams, but they're talking about something on the level of locution, a locution, or they're talking about a vague unction. And the unction gets corroborating um, coincidences to go along with it. And so they'll say, well, is this the Lord? I can't tell you how many times in my own life I've been praying about something or thinking about something concretely. And very distinct coincidences happen all of a sudden. And then, because here's where, it gets, here's where you need more, more mature discernment then all of it utterly collapses and falls apart. It was never the Lord. What is it then? It's intuition. You're in, you, you, are, you are intuitively perceiving things that are real, and your, your mind is subconsciously tying threads together, and then you see how that's working out around you, but that's not the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean it's bad, and it doesn't mean it's good. It means it's a different caliber of, of experience that is real, but don't call it God. And this is one of the things we want to hit at here. So if someone says, how do I know that God's speaking to me? Well, one of the first indicators is if there's no sense of conviction that it's the Lord, don't even think it's God. That's a big one for people. that They don't know how to process that because we're taught in our very subjective, sentimental, romantic um, Romanticism, I mean to say, our romantic ideas today, and for a hundred years it's been like this. Thank you, Schleiermacher. If you feel it, 
it must be the Lord. And that's not true. And we've baptized that idea and brought it into the, to the not the Pentecostal, but the charismatic. Now I'm going to make charismatics upset here. There's a distinction theologically between traditional Pentecostals and the so-called neo-Pentecostal or charismatic third wave group. And it's one that most um, third wave charismatics typically don't think about is that one, there's holiness differences. There's a different expectation for behavior and, and morality. There's also a difference in that traditional Pentecostals were much more focused in being biblically based and wanting what you could call proof texts. They want proof texts for things in Scripture than the neo-charismatic. Doesn't, I'm not saying they don't use the Bible, but I'm saying there's a, there's a dis distinction there. Anybody who came into the a charismatic movement and then met traditional Pentecostals knows what I'm talking about. Or someone who was raised traditional Pentecostal, but then suddenly met charismatics, and, th and you think, I didn't know the Holy Spirit would move upon those people. But he does, because that's another misconception about how the Spirit operates, that he operates on the basis of our morality, and he doesn't. Hello, Corinthians. So the first thing is this. If you are in doubt... If, the, if it's not clear on the inside of you that it's the Holy Spirit, that it's God himself speaking, like God speaks and light exists, okay? If you have that doubt, don't say it's the Lord. That's like the first lesson. Do not attribute something to the Lord. And you say, well, how can I know it's him? You will know that it's him, or you'll be more disposed to knowing that it's him because of the level of authority that the release of the word communicates on the inside. And I think the principle there that people struggle with is you have the woe is me. There's no good thing in me. I'm terrible. I'm the worst thing ever. And then good ideas. Right. The, like, how do, you, how do you bring those two ideas together? The idea that we are fallen, that we are imperfect. However, comma, we do have good ideas that are true. And they're good. Right? I mean, they're good ideas. They're good things to do. And all of those good things to do are things that you should do. Because the scripture says, to him who knows the good and does it not, to him it is sin. So you don't need a divine lightning bolt on the inside of God saying, go and do this. When really, when you see a good thing that needs to be done, you need to do it. That, that's, it, it doesn't need a divine inspiration inside of it. The discernment that we need is, how do I, what's the hierarchy of good things? So we have a general hierarchy of good things that we need to be engaged in, and then it gets more particular and personal to our lives. That's where we need the community of the church. When we're talking about how do we know it's the Holy Spirit, well, I think that's the next step. But that's the first one. If God is speaking, you won't misunderstand it. It's going to be clear. If it's the Spirit of the Lord working through intermediaries, say He's speaking to you, or, or, or the Holy Spirit's directing you through angelic voices. Well, how can people tell the difference? If I were, if I were to do a general poll, what do you think? If, if I were to poll our congregation and I were to poll everyone in the American charismatic renewal, whatever, whatever uh, shade that is, even the Baptist churches and those who would say that it's possible, but they don't think it really happens. Can people tell the difference between the voice of the Holy Spirit, the voice of an angel, and the voice of... So we say one of the saints. What do you think? Can they? I, I don't think so. Why? Logically, it's kind of hard to do. If if you refuse that they speak, it's not because, even. Yeah, how can you? You can't discern it if you don't think it's even an option. Like no, I'm it, saying amongst people who believe that it happens, can they functionally tell the difference? Do you think that they would that they that they would say they can tell the difference between an angel, the Holy Spirit, or or one of the saints in heaven? And if you think the saints don't talk, look at the Mount of Transfiguration. Look at the whole book of Revelation. John's speaking to elders in heaven all the time, and they're not angels. He doesn't give us their names, but he's speaking to elders in heaven all the time. I just I just don't think anyone within the people that believe that can actually happen could distinguish like that. Because it's either one side, like it's good, it's acceptable, or it's not. That's kind of the simple way to look at it. Here, here's my biggest question in this, because I, for me, being open 
two, two of those is a relatively new thing in learning in my, my personal discernment process. Mm -hmm. And well, that being angels and saints, yeah. you know, the, just to go and put that out there. Um, I think my biggest question is how big of a difference doesn't like, doesn't matter. How much does it matter that you're able to discern is discerning the source once you yes. realize, like once you, it's beyond the idea of like my good idea or my dinner from last night, if it puts you, and this is a very pragmatic approach, if it puts you in the right direction, how big of a difference does it matter if you have realized that it is a good heavenly source? It makes a world of difference. Because if you say God told you and God didn't tell you, light bulb. Now I know what you're saying. Thank you. And so, and you, but you're trying to be pragmatic saying, does it matter? Or what, what difference is there if the good thing is still a good thing that happens? It's huge because you always, people always theologize from their experiences. We shouldn't, but we do, which is why we have the confusion we do now. So for example, what's the difference? We're talking about the Holy Spirit, angels and saints. What's the difference between a demon when a demon speaks to you? Can you tell if it's a demon or an angel? Can you tell if it's a demon or the Holy Spirit? Can you tell if it's a demon or your own bad thinking? Well, and I think that that's why I try to differentiate yeah. the, idea, the idea between, like, I, you have discerned that it, whether it's the Lord, it's a saint, or it's an angel, you're like, I don't know which one. However, well, it's the one been discerned that it is, it's, it is from a good source. Like, a, I'm trying to think of the best way to group, a category that would group the Lord, the scripture saints, and angels. Doesn't. The scripture doesn't doesn't put them together. It differentiates. The book of Acts is very clear about this. The, the number of times the angels, like the, an angel tells Philip to run up to the chariot where the Ethiopian eunuch is. But then the Holy Spirit translates him away. So here's the interaction of the Holy Spirit himself and the angels. It's the angels that gets Peter out, gets Peter out, of, out of prison, but then Rhoda thinks it's Peter's angel at the door. What is that? Peter's angel? Is that like Peter's guardian angel? Or is it... Peter without his body in, in, as a spirit? Is, is he a force ghost? Like, what's going on <laughs> that's ha that that's happening? So there's all of this stuff in the worldview of, of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. There's all this stuff in the worldview of those people that's, that's baked into the text of Scripture. This And we have to be mindful of this because we don't have that worldview anymore. This is where you get the liberal who comes along and says, right, so we need to de demythologize it. We have to take out that worldview and limit ourselves just to the written text and recognize that whatever is from their own cultural mythology, we need to dis uh, disregard and fill it in with our own understanding of psychoanalysis and psychology and, and, and chemical science in the brain. And this is how you end up with liberal theology. Whereas the, the classic Christian doctrine has been, no, the scripture from Genesis to Revelation is the word of God written. Does it have the worldview baked into its pages? Yes. And that was divine. Like that's on purpose. God did that on purpose because he's making use of it as a means of illustration of what's going on. That's, that's able to resonate with all human cultures. And then because it's the word of God written, it stands over and judges all human cultures instead of the other way around, that we need to demythologize the scripture to insert our understanding as superior to the divinely inspired understanding. And so it matters very much whether or not we're hearing from, it, two categories, are we hearing from heaven, are we hearing from hell, or middle earth, if you will, uh, <laughs> or are we, and in, in, in differentiating, do we know what we're hearing from? Because is the, is the devil going to suddenly... Uh, you like you like Lord of the Rings a whole lot, Josh. He's going to suddenly start talking to you like Smeagol and Gollum. Nobody likes you. I mean, is it is that is that how the enemy is going to lead his accusation against somebody? Only if he's only if he has been beating them down for years, or they've been living under very negative circumstances and certain kinds of abuse abusive patterns, where their minds already inclined to think that way about themselves. If that's not been the person's experience, he's probably going to come with false revelation with a promise of blessing and a promise of help. And he's fundamentally in the church seeks to be usurp the place of Jesus. To be Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, is not against 
in the sense of like a conflict, like we think about it. It's in the place of. He seeks to usurp. And you see the Antichrist himself. Paul talks about this in Second Thessalonians 2. How the spirit of Antichrist with lying signs and wonders does this. So if the, if the principal means of discussing, how do we know if God's speaking? If we have to ask the question, was this the Lord? Okay, when you, you're first beginning to help people discern, yeah, that's, that's the right, you've got to start there. Because they're probably not used to hearing something other than their own thoughts or something negative, right? Or, and even the good things that they hear, they can, that you just need to teach them to discern. So you can start with that question, is it the Lord? One of the, the next steps after that is teaching them to really understand that if God himself is speaking to you, well, the probability, if you have those particular charisms, the probability in your early Christian life, he's going to be clear, like unequivocally clear, is high. And as you grow closer to him, his voice becomes more subtle. So he still is direct, but he's more subtle because he's been teaching you to obey with a gentler instruction because he's forming you to be like Jesus. He's teaching you to see the good and begin to do it. And so you don't need the same kind of direct thunderbolt of direction. He's teaching you how to make steps of faith. And this goes into a principle that we see in the Lord's life where how often does Jesus have a, a mountaintop experience? I mean, we have four Gospels. But we have one. Well, you know, we've got, we've got the Mount of Transfiguration is the one mountaintop experience. Uh, you could count the baptism of the Lord. But that experience, he doesn't walk around with heaven booming all of the time. But he fill, he's, his life is filled with the Holy Spirit's person and presence and power. And then he pours his spirit out upon the church. And the spirit equips each member of the body with particular charisms. So if you have to ask the question, is it the Lord? Well, yes, that's good for initial believers and for people beginning to discern. But you've got to move beyond that. You're recognizing the gifts of the spirit, so what do you do? That's the next level of discernment. And then we can go to judges for that in a minute here and talk about how the spirits at work amongst the judges and they're getting it wrong all the time, even while they're operating in signs and wonders and power. What was the first place in judges that you had in mind? Well, you've got Jephthah, the anointing, Jephthah's, uh, the anointing on Jephthah, you know, to go and be a judge. And he makes a vow to offer whatever comes out of his, his house as a sacrifice. It's his daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Scholars debate whether or not he actually offers her in fire or if he just makes her live essentially, you know, amongst the, the, the young women and the women who serve at the temple as a consecrated virgin, because that, that was a case that was already in the history of Israel at the time. I don't see anything in the text of Scripture that would lend itself that he did not actually burn her to death. And, oh, that's terrible. That's the point. That's the whole point of the book of Judges, is that it's chaotic. It's unruly. The Spirit's there moving upon the judges to keep Israel as a distinct people in the midst of their horrific apostasies. But the whole book of Judges is fundamentally about why you need a king. And people did what's right in their own, in their own eyes because Israel had no king in those days. That's, that's repeated over and over in the book. But in the midst of all that chaos, the Spirit of the Lord's still operating. People are still doing miracles. Signs and wonders are still happening. Prophets are still prophesying. And that's the whole thing happening in the book of the Corinthians where the Corinthians are radically, radically misjudging what the Holy Spirit means because they, they have prophecy, they have wisdom, they have knowledge, they have healing, they have revelation, they have tongues, they have interpretation. It's all present. And they're still, still dealing with sexual immorality in chapter 5, lawsuits with each other in chapter 6, the misappropriation of family relationships and virginity in chapter 7, idolatry in chapter 8. They've got gender confusion in chapter 11. They got a misunderstanding of the right, right role of love and service in chapter 13. They're wildly out of order in chapter 14. And in chapter 15, they're heretics regarding the res resurrection. All while the Holy Spirit's powerfully working in their midst, and they're making the mistake of saying, the Holy Spirit's here, this must be okay. And I think this is one of the reasons people think that we, that I, talk about this on a negative side. Because it hasn't changed. 
Like that's still what people are doing. I heard somebody say a couple weeks ago that if you were to see the Holy Spirit really working through somebody, you would know why the, the Spirit's work there legitimized the decision-making process. And I thought, you, you don't know what you're saying. Is the Holy Spirit endorsing Jephthah's offering of his daughter? No. The war, the, that's the whole warning. The Spirit's in operation, but these people are fundamentally wrong. And Paul says where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So if you're seeing the Spirit of the Lord sweeping through a church, it doesn't mean that it's right. And it doesn't mean that it's alive. That's not the first thing to, to conclude. The first thing to conclude is that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is reigning in heaven, and he is in his kindness working to bring all of those people more powerfully to himself. That's what's happening. You've got, we've got to recalibrate the discernment process. So to bring it back, yes, we start with, is this the Lord? And the first answer is, if it's, there's not a clear conviction that it's him, don't associate that with him. And then next we have to say, what are the particularities of what you're hearing? And the particularities can help you start to really work through the Holy Spirit, angelic, general, general if there is such a thing, the church triumphant, if you will. Um, and then we could talk about the, 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 the dark voices, if you will, that creep in, you know, like serpents. So I think those are very, very important points because God is speaking. And that's my assumption. And I think that's, that's, I had a conversation a couple years ago with somebody about that. He, he brought up this point. You always, you always bring up negative examples about God speaking. You should teach how, God, how people can hear God. And I said, I, we, have a, we have a different starting point. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm under the opinion and the belief that God is always speaking. He's always speaking to his people. So my whole pastoral approach is to warn them about paying attention to the wrong voices. See, there's a category difference there because there's a whole other subset of, of Christian leaders who feel it's their responsibility to teach people how to hear. And I, I've got a disagreement there. I, I don't think that's how it works because he's always speaking. The problem isn't that you're not hearing him. The problem is you're not discerning him rightly because you're so focused on some other false theological presupposition about how you should be living your best life right now. So you're open up to a whole set of falsehoods that aren't true. So here, the character of Jesus, you mentioned, we mentioned judges here here it is for you, Josh. What did the Holy Spirit lead Jesus to do? Be born of a virgin. No, no, I mean, like the incarnation's already happened. Okay. It starts with the virgin birth, but what, what is he, what does the spirit of the Lord lead him into? To the cross. To the cross. So how many people who say the Holy Spirit's leading them find themselves adopting responsibility, doing more work, doing more difficult tasks for the sake of other people who are blind to their need of that work. So how do I know if the Holy Spirit's speaking? Because that's where he's going to lead me. He's going to lead me where I don't want to go. He's going to lead me into difficulty. He's going to lead me into wilderness experiences. He's going to lead me like Elijah, who's commanded by the word of the Lord to go live by a brook, while the famine is ravishing the land, and then the brook dries up and he has no more food. So it's in the midst of his obedience to the prophetic word and his life in the spirit that he's experiencing the lack that he is. Does God come along and provide for it? He does. But the idea that you never experience those moments, that's a falsehood. That's a doctrine of demons. But it's so prevalent in so many of the spirit-filled circles, and then the subsequent prophecies that are associated with that all with particular signs and wonders, speak to why you need to be very, very careful because the spirit that was on Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, will work in the church the same way that he worked in Christ. I mean, what you're describing and the way that you go about it, explaining, watch out for the false voices, that's how most of the men that God has called in the history of the scripture and even after that, the church fathers, the apostles, like I know of the epistle of Peter talks about, watch out, you know, there's going to be false people coming. Oh up. yeah. Yeah. Moses said the same thing, you know? So, I mean, that's, that's, that's a common theme throughout the scripture. Well, you know, somebody says, well, how do I know if I'm hearing God? And, and one of the questions, depending on who it is, right? One of my questions is why is that important to you? 
not and hear me not that i disbelieve like i just said i I already believe based upon scripture god's already speaking one day and night the heavens pour forth speech right so if the natural order is proclaiming the gospel how much more the spirit who abides in us through baptism and the eucharist always speaking okay that's not when i say why is it important to you my my real question is this uh, the the laden in that why is it important to you is why are you looking for some experience outside of the natural wisdom that he's been given he's given to you and the very clear instruction in scripture genesis to revelation and then why do you need more uh, outside of Genesis to Revelation that the church hasn't already provided for in the Apocrypha, in the prayer book, in the 39 articles, in the formularies? So if you're taking into consideration the sum total of all of the church's wisdom, and you're still saying, how do I know if God's speaking to me? I don't think the issue is God's speaking. I think there's a discernment problem. Because if you step out to do what the Lord has, has given you to do, well, so that's what I'm asking. How do I know? You know because of the need that's in front of you that you have the capacity to help in. You know because it's good that you see. Angelic dreams, visitations from heaven, the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit. As he's working, the presence of those manifestations are in such, they're, they're so evident, you don't, you don't wrestle with whether or not it's happening. You wrestle with what it means. You see the difference? So we, you know, I can't tell you how many times, um, and I don't want any more thorns in the flesh. I can't tell you how many times I've had some sort of heavenly revelation or heavenly vision, if you want to call it like that, to use biblical language. And my, the challenge for me was not, is this happening? Now that happens to me very often because uh, in those experiences, I'm like, is this happening to me right now? Uh, when they happen and but the experience ends if you will right and my my initial set of questions are what does this mean you see the, see the difference here what is it god and what does it mean are not the same thing so if i'm asking what does it mean i want to know how do i interpret it so let me go and look at scripture let me look at the wisdom of the church let me look at the community of, of saints i'm with right now as I'm asking the Lord, show me what this means. Because if he gave you the revelation, he'll give you the, he'll give you the explanation. But he's probably going to make you search for it. Otherwise, he would have told you right away what it meant. Because part of the process of discernment and searching for the meaning that requires the whole church is raising the whole church up. It's growing the whole church into maturity. So you have to have these, these, these facets that are, that are going on, right? Um, yeah. So you're saying that it's not invalid to ask the question, is it God? But it's better to ask, you know, being God as he speaks very clearly. I think people who are new to the Lord, and I think people who are new to really learning that they shouldn't trust every itchy elbow. I'm not kidding. Well, I mean, I am, but I'm not. I've heard people say my elbow was itching, so now the Holy Spirit was speaking. Okay. I mean, look, there's all kinds of ways the Lord speaks to people, but you hear that so many times, you're like, you just got to... I don't think that's the Holy Spirit like you think it is, okay? Um, and maybe it's just people aren't weren't in the same circles I was in where I would hear that. They've never heard that before. But nonetheless, they're out there. Yeah, the, the beginning level, the person beginning discernment and really working through the process of, of right discernment, that's a good question. Is this the Lord? Move beyond it. What does it mean? What does it mean? Yeah. And that's what... Gets me, you know, we're talking about, you know, Corinth and the church there. Mm. <laughs> if the Lord was talking all the time and he was moving, what was he saying? Like, what, you know, and like, where was the issue? Uh, was the issue in, uh, like, what's going on there? Well, Paul, and, so, then, and then ironically, you know, it's, it's not those gifts that bring the church to correction. It is Paul and his teaching. That's right. It's the gospel through the apostolic authority which is Paul. Paul, Paul says to, to them in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, well, let me say this before I read the passage, five times, five times in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions all the churches or the other churches, meaning his doctrine and his practice that he's giving to them, he's saying is the case everywhere. 
That's an important point for us to keep in mind because we don't think that way. We, we have this, uh, it, it, this would be a different podcast episode, but it became very popular, I want to say around 1980. Mm, I think it was 1980. That's when it, you start to see it in more publications. I have not done an actual Google, Google search of how often the terms were used in the past 500 years, but just based upon things I've, I've studied, um, which again is a sliver of the whole. But around 1980, you really start to see in various writers this distinction between a historical command and a universal command. Meaning there are things that the scripture commands that are based upon the context that it's in, and they have no direct fulfillment or no direct injunction outside of that immediate command. And then there are universal commands that apply everywhere. And then depending upon the particular theologian's use of those categories, then they'll go into the New Testament and they'll start citing what they think is historical and what they think is universal. That's a helpful means of, of dissecting things. It's just new in a lot of ways. Now, you have some of the fathers that refer to this, this principle. They, they, they consider it, you know, when Paul tells uh, Timothy to bring his cloak. You know, you, you clearly, that's something historical. But I point out the Corinthians because five times, five times Paul talks about what's done amongst all the churches. And... I have to go back and look at each one of those examples, but I know, I know right offhand two or three of them are directly not the practices of the majority of American Christians in the Western civilization, Western culture. And all of that started roughly between 1950 and 1975. So it's, it's significant that here Paul is referring to something, or to some things as the practice amongst all the churches, speaking to the universality of not just apostolic doctrine, but apostolic practice. But here's what he says about um, the gifts of the Spirit in, in chapter 14. So he goes to, uh, look at verse 37, he says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, I mean, he's, he's, he's not, there's no way to misunderstand him here. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that what I am writing to you is a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. There's recalling Deuteronomy 13 right there. So Paul's saying, I'm, what I'm writing to you is from the Lord. And if anyone says they're filled with the Spirit and they disagree, ignore them. Notice Paul doesn't say they're not filled with the Spirit because he's already said in chapter 1, they're abounding in the gifts but their, their abounding in the gifts of the Spirit doesn't make their doctrine and their practice correct. We receive the Spirit not because our doctrine is, doctrine is correct and not because our practice is correct. We receive the Spirit because Jesus reigns in heaven and He's calling all of us into maturity. And so we have to go to the Word of God written, which is the ultimate prophetic act of God aside from the Incarnation itself, the Word of God written within the community of the church, and then say, what is God saying? The Word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Every, every service, you know, with the liturgy. So we're hearing the Spirit speaking, and we have to do the hard work of appropriation. When you're talking about personal experiences in the, of, of a spiritual nature, the subjective nature of it, and subjective doesn't mean it's to denigrate it, it just means it's not objective. Other people don't know what's happening to you. They may or may not know that it's happening. That, that's the difference between object. One, the difference is between objective and subjective. You're having a locution. You're having an unction. You're having an utterance. Ask the Lord, one, for Scripture. So we, we do that here on Sunday, and this is my advice to people when we, on Wednesdays when we have a, a special prayer meeting. Do you feel the Holy Spirit's giving you an unction? Well, ask Him for clarity, one, and two, ask Him for Scripture. So, you know, if you're, if you're praying over somebody personally and you get the sudden unction that they need, a, they need a particular encouragement for whatever problem's going on or a particular word of advice, ask the Lord for a scripture, look it up. And you don't have to say, God just gave me this scripture for you. You don't need to say that. You, you just share the scripture. You know, it says in this verse, etc. you read the verse or, or, or quote it from memory, whatever, and then say, can I pray this verse over you? And so what you're doing is you're, the person will receive the ministry, but over time, and with the connections that you're having, you're teaching people to have a, a Bible base in how they live, 
and and you're teaching that the Holy Spirit's working through the Scripture to unite us, not just uh, the the members of the body together here on earth, but tying the whole body together to the head in heaven. The Spirit's always doing that. He's always doing that. But when you take that as a practice and how you share the word with someone, then you start to build these other principles out. You don't need to say the Lord's saying. He will evidence that it's something he's saying by the manifestation of his power and his presence as that is resonant with what he said once for all in Scripture. So, in that, obviously, makes me think about the specifics of called the cultivation of faith in in in, in the community of Christ, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this has been something that for me just has been it's been something new to me, even though it shouldn't be new. So you're saying that I know when I've grown grown up and seen like a lot of different um things happen. I interpret my Christianity or Christianity as a whole to be, okay, what I do outside of the doors and then what I bring inside the doors. But what you're saying and how you're communicating this is that it's working within community, like all of the, all of these things. Like it's not, you're not just coming, bringing to the table this particular revelation that you, you served by yourself. It was given to you like in the midst of community. Well, like I, just I think a lot of people have experiences of the Spirit and Him speaking. I mean, they have them in the church meeting, in a prayer meeting, but a lot of times it's by yourself. It's when you're in your own prayer closet. It's when you're, you're driving up the road and you're just seeking the Lord and suddenly, or you're not particularly in prayer, and suddenly He makes something known to you. Let me, let me give you an example that I've shared before. Some people are going to they're gonna laugh and say, oh, the Holy Spirit doesn't do that well. You're free to that opinion, but I'm going to disagree with you. I was, uh, oh man, 2007, it was a while ago. I was, it was, it was a, a lazy afternoon. I think it was like a Saturday afternoon, lazy afternoon. And I was, I wasn't even sitting on the couch. I was kind of like on the couch with half my back off of it. Just kind of like lounging isn't even the word, um, fat and lazy is probably the best way to describe it. Right. <laughs> just kind of. On, on the couch, and uh, my feet are hang- like my back's off of it. I don't know if I wasn't even stretching my back, but I wasn't sitting or laying on the couch. It was it was a just there, right? And on the television was a Star Trek: The Next Generation, and I wasn't really watching it. It was just on. I'm sitting there, and suddenly, in my mind's eye, I'll call it a locution. In my mind's eye, off to the to the left of me, above me. It was as if heaven opened, right? And in this, this inner vision, I saw the Lord on his throne. It was like a split second, and it was over. And Star Trek wasn't talking about Q, wasn't talking about anything that could, could, be, could lend itself towards something like that. It was just a you know, TV show on, and there was this sudden flash, right? When it ended, and like I said, it was quick, the thought that came to mind was, wow. And a few seconds later, this realization, am I making use of my time in a way that's worthy of Jesus reigning in heaven? Now, somebody could come along and they could say, well, I don't think that's the Holy Spirit. Okay, you're fine. That, that, okay, you, that's, that's what you think. And they would say, and they would say, so, you know, I, I, and I think it's really bad to just have those kinds of experiences. My response would be, well, if you don't believe it's the Holy Spirit, that's fine. I didn't say God did it. I'm just saying what happened. And my thought process afterwards was a thought process rooted in the gospel. Leonard Ravenhill, famous preacher of, of generations back, uh, it's on his tombstone. He, uh, it's something he used to say all the time. Are the things you're living for the things worth Christ dying for? So I think there's, a, there's an element here where we are seeking, many Christians are seeking some sort of spiritual experience as a means to, to validate their wounded hearts. And I think that's part of the reason you get into a lot of, you know, um, the daddy God stuff, 
is there's this profound wound in people's souls that they feel they need to meet through some sort of extraordinary experience, but that doesn't heal them. So they'll have some experience, and I'm not saying whether it's the Lord or not, that's not my point, but they'll have some kind of experience and the wound doesn't get healed because the wound's got to be healed a particular way. And it, it you know, if, if the charismata, if the charisms of the Spirit healed those wounds, we wouldn't have the letter to the Corinthians. We wouldn't have it. If the charismata gave right doctrine, if, it, if the gifts of the Spirit gave us wisdom to understand the truth of God, we wouldn't need the letters of the New Testament. We wouldn't need the apostolic testimony. We, our, our faith is rooted in the apostolic testimony that the Holy Spirit confirms with profoundly deep conviction that then he, he complements with these other gifts and graces. And too often we go the other way around. So is God speaking? Yes. Are you listening? That's the next question. And as you're listening, how are you discerning? And I think, I hope that's practical enough for folks. Would you then say, I guess, as an application, in, in essence of that, this particular hermeneutic of the Spirit, that it leads us back into the, the gospel and Christ on the cross at this, as a central... Yeah, he, the Holy Spirit is never going to say something other than what Jesus said in the Gospels. I think that's another thing to keep in mind. The Holy Spirit doesn't say anything that's not in Scripture or not resonant with Scripture. So, for example, let's say there's a, a famine coming upon a certain portion of the earth, and that, like in South America, and the Bible doesn't talk about South America. So how can you say it's all in Scripture? Because people get into this kind of uh, false... Uh, what is it? logical fallacies? Fallacies. They get into these kind of ridiculous ideas. It's weird, real quick. Yeah. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about South America, so how can it be God saying there's going to be a famine there? You don't want to understand. The scriptural speaks about the scripture speaks about the principles of it, and the Holy Spirit teaches us. He raises up prophets to whom He tells these things, so that they can share it with the body, so the body can discern it, discern it one, and then two, act. So prophetic words aren't given just for general encouragement. They do that. That's one of their functions. But prophetic words are given to mobilize the body, to mature the body, to, to give the body a direction and in, in where to go and how to invest its time and energy. You see this, the Spirit of the Lord doing this all through the book of Acts. So the Spirit directs mission. He directs church planting. He directs who should be sent into the ministry. He's very active. That's, that's the uh, one of the two ways that God works, right? So you have the I don't want to call it the extraordinary, but you've got these, this uh, eminent sense in which God speaks and works to direct us through the gifts. And then you have the, the providential way that he works, where there, is no, there are no bells and whistles, there are no flashing lights, but somebody in the church comes up to somebody and says, I think you're called to, to the ministry, and I need your help. I'd like you to prepare. Both of those are equally valid. And the Spirit of the Lord works through both. So this is where we, we hear the Lord and we hear him providentially. And in the providence, we, and that's why we even have the word providence. We wouldn't say, God told me, even though the series of events have the divine fingerprints all over them. And that's something that we need to keep in mind as, as a distinguishing characteristic. So when people say, how do I know I'm hearing the Lord? Well, one, you're going to know if, if, it's, if it's one of those... Um, extraordinary graces if it's a, a direct locution in the soul, a vision, a dream, something to that effect. It's clear. And it's also consistent and resonant with Scripture, and it bears witness with the rest of the church. I mean, th those are some really easy tests there. And then you could take it on out, depending upon what you, you know, you're sensing from the Lord. Um, you know, if you're like Jeremiah or Ezekiel and God's giving you a word of rebuke for the church, you probably shouldn't expect the church to agree with you, but you, you should expect that God will confirm that word that you're given with things that are irrefutable. But that's not the majority of how God speaks to prophets within the church, that, and it hasn't been that way. It, it didn't seem like it was the case in uh, Corinth. Right, right. The Corinthian correspondence is, 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 oh man, it's really important. And that principle right there, Paul's whole thing is, you think you're filled with the Spirit, then you're going to do what I'm telling you. 
just that just that by itself um we were having a conversation a little bit before it started about how dealing with like a lot of different people and even the idea of agreeing with what the apostle said above their own opinion is hard it's a hard pill to swallow no one likes to say i'm wrong well paul gives very i mean he gives very concrete rules guidelines in first corinthians 14 you know about two or three witnesses or two or three prophets speaking and then the others judging I mean, that's because every, every fact is confirmed by two or three witnesses. He's recalling the law of Moses. It's more than a free church service where three people speak, they take a pause, and they judge, and three more speak. Like, he's, he's not—that's not the primary focus. The primary focus is, if for the Holy Spirit speaking in these charisms, one, he will be consistent as he's speaking. He's not going to—it's not going to bounce from topic to topic to topic to topic. Because that's not a, a good trumpet sound, right? That's what he starts with in this whole discussion about the gifts, about the blast of the trumpet and, and notes that you can't tell, like a, like a language that you don't know, right? So the two or three speak, and the Spirit confirms that he's speaking because it's, it's the same theme, right? Um, are the words encouragement? Are they exhortation? Are they exhortation? Are they, are they mobilizing the church? You know, think about Haggai and Zephaniah when they're prophesying and stirring the people up to continue to build the temple. So you've got this, this dynamic quality of the extemporaneous nature of prophetic ministry that is a complement to the preached word, never to take the place of it. I was in a service one time. Here's another ne negative example. I was in a service one time where while the pastor was preaching, somebody broke out in a message in tongues. There's like 500 people in this church. Um, I don't, I don't remember who, who, what, who it was. I didn't know the person. Um, but speaking in tongues, the pastor stops preaching. The whole church waits. The message in tongues ends. And guess what? There's no interpretation. No interpretation, but even more. The pastor shuts it down. No. He, let, he just doesn't. He, he, like, he picked right back up with these notes and kept preaching. See, the Holy Spirit doesn't interrupt himself. Did that person who spoke out in tongues, were they genuinely being moved upon by the Holy Spirit? It's possible. But that doesn't mean that was orderly. Doesn't mean, that shouldn't have happened that way. Because maybe that person was, had something that they were wrestling with in the Spirit that was intended to be shared privately with the pastor later. Or there was a time in the service where it would be appropriate for that charism and the subsequent necessary interpretation to be shared. So Paul goes a whole lot into decency and order regarding many things in chapter 14. He's picking, he actually picks it up in chapter 11. He's talking about prophesying and he picks it back up again in 14 because 11, 12, 13, and 14 are all essentially the same theme of the gifts of the spirit around the Lord's supper around, around the Eucharist. And the primary impetus for all of the gifts, as in all of the gospel, is love. So that's why 1 Corinthians 13 is, a, 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 everybody likes to use it for weddings. Well, that's, that's great, but it's, it's a Eucharistic chapter. It's, I mean, essentially, quintessentially, you know, its realization is the Eucharist. So you, you've got all of that happening in, the, in, the, in these chapters around, around that. And Paul's very practical. And those practical points, they still apply. And they help. I mean, that's the other thing, you know. They help us in discern. I think the biggest thing from all this is that the Lord appeared to you while you were watching Star Trek and not Star Wars. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I've never, I've never had any kind of, uh, uh, you know, experience watching Star Wars. Or maybe that's what the whole warning was about. You're watching Star Trek instead of Star Wars. You know better. Mm. I read something in scripture about not casting your pearls to swine. <laughs> Uh, I'll say after that experience, I really thought, man, what am I doing in my free time? Yeah, it just felt like Star Trek was a rock bottom. <laughs> what do you do with your free time? So I've got stacks of books next to my chair now. I have for years. Uh, even before that experience, I was just, you know. And I'm not saying there's no time to rest, but the, the point I'm making is that uh, with that particular story, I could, I could get lost in the art in, in self 
reflection, was that the Lord? And this goes back to one of your first questions. Does it matter? Yeah, it matters, but I'm not saying it was him. That's the first thing. It could have just been a stray thought that took a picture form and that I could refer back to Aquinas and talk about that for a moment like we, like we were doing. Could have been an angel provoking my imagination. It could have been. But I can tell you this, it wasn't a demon. And it wasn't something that was derived from my own carnal desires. Because those things never lead you into a more focused devotional life. That experience called me to, to pray and to reckon with what I was doing with my block of free time that afternoon that has impacted what I do with my time since. And I was never a kind of guy to just waste my time. I was reading theology when I was 15. So th this, is, this is a point I'm making is that one of the fundamental effects of heavenly experiences, if you will, that always typically happen in mundane life, but one of the effects of them is the sanctification of, of the life and of the church because the Holy Spirit is not a showman. He doesn't show up and do parlor tricks. He doesn't make people fall around on the floor to get up and then act like demons. He doesn't do that. If he's going to knock them down and roll them across the floor, then they're going to get up and they're going to be more angelic. That's what he's doing. They're going to be more Christ-like. He's not a showman. He doesn't do healings and miracles to show, uh, to show off in the way that somebody, like the, a lot of the preachers do. That, that's not what he does. He takes you into the valley. He takes you into the desert, and he purifies you through affliction and difficulty when no one else is around. And then he brings you back out of there, and people wonder why you have a limp. Well, the Lord gave it to me. Well, no, he doesn't. God doesn't do that. Read the scripture. Yes, he does. Because in the limp, he's teaching you that you're always reliant upon him, and he's making you keep it so you, start, you don't start to walk without your own power. Because that's what you'll do. And the more independent we are, the more prone we are to doing that. This is a true thought, but it also helps me understand a lot of, uh, reconcile a lot of what I've seen in like Benny Hinn videos. <laughs> he's just, he's name dropping. <laughs> let's be honest. Whenever anybody thinks of all the craziness you just stated, it's Benny Hinn's usually on the stage. So let's not even pretend, okay, okay. you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, just the YouTube, Lord we're going to get, we're gonna get hate mail now. Yeah. No more. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead, Josh. Go ahead. No, that was it. I just, it puts it in perspective. I guess that that's the rap, just like the, and what you're talking about. You like, sent me let the bodies hit the floor. I, I saw did? that. You did. Yeah. Like a couple years ago, you sent me that. Pretty sure that was a group message. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was the one about uh, blowing COVID-19 away with the fires from hell. <laughs> Wait, was that Josh? No, no. No. Somebody else sent me that one. That was a, that that was a gentleman one. from Texas. Yeah. I, somebody sent me that one where Ken Copeland was summoning the fires of hell to blow with the wind of God COVID away. Then uh, somebody... I won't name him because I don't want him to get in trouble with his friends. Because, but they sent me the lady who was prophesying like Gandalf. Um, <laughs> I mean, I get, I get, I don't ask for any of this stuff. People you said, it. Shall like, why, not why, why do you want my opinion? That's one question I have. Like, what do you? Why are you asking my opinion about this? And second, if you already have a sense that it's not right, I would just ignore it, hands down. Just ignore it. And go back to the scripture. Look at the sanctifying graces of God. Uh, start there. Yeah. But I mean, I bring that up because, you know, in the culture we live in in America, there's an obsession with entertainment. Yes. And I, and I, and I understand, you know, you know, you're resting and you watch like maybe like one show or something like that. But there's just an overly obsession with watching all the time. Binge watching this, binge watching this. Okay, what's the next thing you're going to watch? And that's kind of spilled over into church life in America. In it is. And, I, and I'm not hitting people who binge watch TV shows. I'm not, that's not my point. Right. The point is that when the spirit of the Lord is operating, he starts to sanctify. That's what he does. He, theosis in the Greek, you know, he's, he's divinizing you. He, you are cold steel and he's setting you into the fire, into his own fire. And then through the experiences of your life and the fellowship that you're in, he is then takes you out of the fire and takes a hammer to you. So he can shape you into the weapon that you're supposed to be. And occasionally he'll stick you in the water to cool you off. But then that's to go right back into the fire to get reforged, to continue to be forged. That's what he does. He's preparing us so that we never become the flame, but we take on all the communicable attributes of the flame that we can. And that's what he's doing 
in the various charisms. That's, that's, that is a principal means of discernment. If the Lord's calling you into something that's more difficult, he's calling you into more work. Or, let me back up. You're feeling a sense of obligation, a sense of responsibility, that you've got to move, that you've got to make difficult decisions, that it's not going to be comfortable, and you don't know how it's going to work, and you're wondering, is it God? Probably. Probably. It's not the devil. The devil's not calling you to carry more responsibilities like Jesus. He doesn't do that. He says, hey, buddy, why don't you come down from the cross? Hey, why don't, you, why don't you take the power that you have and turn these stones into bread? Hey, I tell you what, why don't you just bow the knee one time to me, just once, just once, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. That's what he does. Well, I think that does a solid job of patching up the hermeneutic of the spirit for this particular I hope episode. So. I hope so. So for any of you who have any other questions, you can email Daryl. Yeah, they, they can email me. I, I just hope, well, I, I know we're closing here, but I just hope that when we're thinking about the gifts and the charisms of the spirit, the people will really avail themselves in a conscious way to hear the Lord, to listen, to pay attention to discern their life experiences and then to ask the Lord for clarity and to trust him for it um, and to stay in step with him. You know, and if you've got, you're, you're, you're in a church environment where they're not open to particular charisms and gifts, ask the Lord to give the pastors their leader, the leaders their wisdom and insight and in how to help you discern based upon the gifts that they have because that, that can take place too. So email Daryl at ascensionwv.org. That's Daryl with two R's and one L. A Y-L, not E-L. Correct. Yeah, yeah. It was when I was passing the church in Baltimore where I met you that I was known as Darrell. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good Appalachian name. <laughs> so yeah, Daryl at ascensionwv.org if you have any questions about, about this topic. We do have our next few weeks are questions and topics that are unrelated to this topic, but they're still listeners' questions. So, thanks, and everybody. I'm Josh. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl.